Hey, film fans, I'm Jackie Lynn here with Dave Demarest for the next episode of Dollar Theater, the show where we watch films with higher reviews and could be worth a watch. This week, we're covering Ferris Bueller's Day Off, released in 1986 and starring Matthew Broderick, Alan Ruck, Mia Sarah, Jennifer Grey, and directed and written by John Hughes. Pretty sure that I have not met anyone who does not love this film. Critics gave it a 7.8 on IMDb and an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Our guest tonight, Anthony Dotavio, loves all things film, of course, but suspense thrillers are his favorite. He is also a pretty serious gamer, and he and a group of friends have video game contests where they actually compete for the gamer's version of a wrestling belt. Anthony, have you obtained this belt since we last talked to you? Unfortunately, no. no. <gasps> oh, man. Okay. We're going to circle back to that. <laughs> Hopefully, next time. have a belt. Hopefully. I'll wear it on the show. <laughs> all right. All right. Sounds good. Well, we're glad to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, Dave, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. What do you think? So you and I were talking last night, Jackie, about this movie, and... I think this is close to a perfect movie. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I had said to, we were talking and I said, you have, I don't have any children, but you obviously do have ch children. And I said, this is a movie that like you, I, Anthony, or anyone could enjoy. You could also show to your kids and they might enjoy this as well. This is, yeah, close to a perfect movie. I've seen this probably, I don't know, 50 to 100 times. And there's no... There's no wasted scenes in this movie like is impactful. There's just, there's nothing that's a throwaway. Everything means something. Everything's memorable. Just really good movie. Some people might disagree with me. I think this is the best John Hughes movie. Some people might say they like The Breakfast Club or Uncle Buck. But for me, this is, this is the number one John Hughes. And yeah, I'm really glad to be covering it. It's, yeah, Ma this is the signature movie for Matthew Broderick, I'd say. Um, love Alan Ruck in this, Mia Sarah. We're going to talk about all the people in this, but adore this movie. Excited to be covering it. Anthony, where'd you land with this one? This is a hands-down cult classic. It's one of my favorite John Hughes movies. It really has everything. It's got love. It's got intrigue. It's got great comedy. It's got a great story. And every part fits. Like, everything, like like you said, uh, I rewatched it again today, and it still holds up everything still holds up to nowadays like where it's if they made this movie now i still think it would have done well definitely and usually i'm able to pinpoint when we cover a movie i'm able to say i the first time i saw this was at this age and at this place i don't remember the first time i saw this i was like i want to say i was like 12 or 13 so i saw it at an age where I was impressionable enough to say, oh, wow, I would love to be Ferris Bueller, but also realistic enough to say, yeah, I'm probably going to be Cameron when I grow up. And I think that's kind of like the reality for most people. And this is just a movie about a high school kid trying to get the day off of school. But there, there's so much more than that. It's, it's about friendships, just family life. It's perfect. So, Jackie, where'd you land with this one? I adore this film. I, I really love it. I've loved it since the first time I saw it. And it like you guys are saying as well, it still holds up to this day. And th this film has really 
stood the test of time here. I was two years old when it came out in the theaters, so I definitely didn't see it um, <laughs> on its initial release. But I think the first time I saw it was for youth group at a church event when I was a teen. So around that 13 years old, and I feel kind of lame saying that too. (laughs) But I was exposed to a lot of pop culture through that group of kids. Anyways, it's uh, it's been a fun watch. Yes, and Dave, like you're saying, I'm pretty sure my kids are going to dig this movie in a couple years when they're old enough to see it as well. Sure. And so let's talk about Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick's the star of this movie. I think anyone who follows his career is going to say this is the movie I remember him for but he's had kind of an interesting career because I remember war games before this but this is this isn't an original hot take by me but it's one that I kind of agree with we've covered a movie of his previously Jackie we covered the cable guy which was 10 years after this and he's playing Ferris Bueller in this this really cool kid but by 1996 he's playing the sidekick to Jim Carrey and the cable guy in 1999, he's playing like the grumpy teacher, the foil to Reese Witherspoon in election. He's playing characters that are basically Cameron 10 years, 10 years later after this movie. Hmm. It's just like a weird dynamic. He has, he's had an interesting career. I, I think you might have saw this movie in 1986 and thought he was going to be the next Tom Cruise or DiCaprio. And it just didn't turn out that way for him. But this was, you know, Apex Mountain, not a, there are worse hills to be on than being the star of this movie. So I love him in this. He's had a really interesting career. Anthony, what do you think of Broderick in this or him in general? Any thoughts? I really like the fact, like the fourth wall, all the breaking, how he's talking throughout the movie. I like his dynamic. I like how he's manipulative with Cameron how he gets Cameron to do things like the scene when Cameron's beating the crap out of the car because probably, <laughs> I guess we're not friends anymore. And then like, you just really just it's phenomenal throughout the episode. And you're correct in saying a lot of his later roles were more mundane. Like I remember him in producers as well. Yes. With, oh, uh, right. And like in another role like that, like he's always played that role after. So, I remember seeing this. I saw this movie when I was like a, a little bit older than you guys. I was like 16 or 17. Okay. First time. That's when I really got into movies at that time. And I remember seeing it and I was a little inebriated at the time, but I remember that I couldn't stop laughing like the whole, the whole time. And I've tried to get out of school. I remember back in the day, I used to put my thermometer on the radiator trying to get the fever and one time I didn't realize and I had 127 fever so not as smooth as him but couldn't get a better person I, I know they were looking at a couple other people for it like Emilio Estevez I think they were looking at and also Anthony Michael Hall yeah but yeah. he brought it was the right person for this role surely uh Jackie same question what do you think about Broderick in this or in general loved Broderick in this role he definitely nailed it as a yuppie kid And he is annoying, but he plays this great, carefree, scheming character to a T. And, you know, I think this this film put Broderick on the map. It's a really unique role. I don't think we've ever seen anything like it for him again, where he's breaking the fourth wall. And John Hughes had him in mind for this role 
initially with casting. So I think that was just a really nice, customized, perfect casting for this. If and, and if I ask you, what film do you know Matthew Broderick from? What do you remember him from? I have a feeling you're going to say Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Surely. You can debate on who the co-lead of this movie is, and we're, we're probably going to talk about all the, the other leads. But for me, the, it's, this is primarily a story about the friendship between Ferris and Cameron, played by Alan Ruck. And Alan Ruck has also had an interesting career. He's mostly going to be known for this role. I, he showed up in, uh, he was on Spin City, which I didn't watch, but I know that was a very popular show that a lot of people liked. He was one of the passengers on the bus in Speed. So right. when you see that movie and you're just like, oh, okay, that, that's Cameron on the bus. I, I hope he's safe. <laughs> you see him as one of the people in Twister. It wasn't until even just recently where he plays Connor Roy on Succession that he kind of like was able to break away from being just Cameron forever. I think now he kind of had like a reemergence in his career, but just a really interesting actor, kind of a that guy. I don't know if anyone knows him as actually Alan Ruck or they know him as Cameron or Connor Roy, but I, I love him in this role. He's just the, the chemistry between him and Broderick. It's, you could tell this is a genuine friendship between the two of them. And they just they just say things where you know these two have a history without having to like imply it. Where he says, if you don't come to my house in 15 minutes, you can find yourself a new best friend. And Cameron's just like, huh, you've been saying that since the fifth grade. You can just, <laughs> like little lines like that between the two of them. You can tell that these two are there for each other in perpetuity, no matter what. Anthony, what would you think about uh, Alan Ruck in this? Well, um, they were actually friends before the movie filmed. Yeah. Uh, were close friends, and that's why it really worked. I love one of my favorite scenes, I have it in my scenes, is the scene when he's talking to uh, the principal about, like, he's trying to say that her, Mia Sarah, has uh, her, is her uh, grandmother died. <laughs> he's going with that voice. And I, I think he was supposed to say he was trying to break Matthew Broadwick, <laughs> like the way he was doing it. But they really played so well off each other in every scene. I, it's a great chemistry. It, it really, and it showed on the film. Like it was really, hands down, like a great friendship throughout. And you could see that they were outside friends because it was just the way they reacted to each other. They were really good in catching each other like you know that was when i was writing my scenes it was just like i'm gonna write this whole movie because as, as i said in the beginning there's really nothing there's no throwaway stuff in this movie everything is like important everything is funny the phone call is just the phone call from cameron to rooney it's just hilarious he's like call me sir god damn it just, <laughs> he's like part of my french but you're an asshole <laughs> he's so good uh jackie any thoughts on on rock in this movie Anthony, did you want to add to that? Well, I was going to every time that they said part of my French, they would say asshole. It was never like an F word and it dropped throughout the whole movie, but it was, <laughs> asshole was the part of my French, French <laughs> over the years. I'm on the same page as both of you. And Anthony, I'm really glad that you brought up the on-screen chemistry between Matthew Broderick and Alan Ruck. It's always such a better experience as a viewer when you can see that real relationship that exists beyond their roles and beyond them just doing their jobs. 
So it, it really enhances the film when we can get a good, genuine relationship behind that. And Alan Ruck, I'm really happy with him in this role. He really seemed to embrace that inner struggle of his character, uh, which is actually quite serious. Yeah. And he had a lot of serious anxiety there. And I was reading an article where John Hughes was commenting about his character and he based him off of a real person that he knew in high school. He described him as someone who's very lost, whose family neglected him. And they quote him saying when he was sick, he actually felt good because it was difficult and tiring to invent diseases and problems. When So when he actually had something real, he was relaxed. So I really think that's reflective of Cameron's ca character in this role. And Alan Ruck does a really great job, especially in a comedy, finding that balance. And he doesn't make Cameron goofy. It's a serious role, but he's still interesting and likable to watch and root for. Definitely. The other leads in this movie, Jennifer Grey, Mia Sarah, they're the other kids, his girlfriend and his sister. I thought both of them were, were really good. Jennifer Grey, probably the signature movie for her is Dirty Dancing. But Mia Sarah is just really interesting because if you were investing in Mia Sarah in 1986, you would have said she would be the next leading lady. But for some reason, it just, it did not happen. I remember, I don't know, I might be aging myself a little bit, but there was a TV show in about 2003 called Birds of Prey. It was a WB show. Yes. Okay. And she played like a retired Harley Quinn. And that was the first time I think I had seen her in since Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So hmm. like not a lot of roles. I, I read up on her today and it looks like she does poetry, but she she occasionally shows up in a movie that I, I've never heard of. And, and Jennifer Grey, I thought... She, I haven't seen Dirty Dancing in so long. So kind of for me, this is the movie I still think of when I think of Jennifer Grey as well. Um, Anthony, anybody from the side cast stand out for you? Those are the two that kind of stand out for me. Um, I love Jennifer Grey in this uh, as, a, as a side character. I really love the scene between her and Charlie Sheen. Oh, my God. So good. <laughs> we got to talk about that. Like this delinquent looking guy. Like he basically tells her something and then she she's like, Okay, maybe I'm not mad at her. But the way that that was great chemistry, too. And they're friends. And she actually got him the role yeah. on the movie. Rooney really did it for me, too. I I, I had a principal like that. So I... <laughs> Whoa, creepy. I, yeah. Well, I, I had one. It was... I went to Catholic school. So I had a nun. It was a nun who was this. And um, I'm not going to say anything bad about the, the nun because, you know, I don't want to go to hell. She might be listening. In, yeah, that's probably passed away. Uh, what, not okay. Maybe not then. <laughs> she passed away a while ago, but she used to hit me with Rolla and stuff like that. It was it was crazy. So she was like that psycho. So, but the way he played it, it really just came off very well. I thought so. He was one of my my favorite side characters, other than the girls. Uh, the parents are really good too. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, Really, I would go Jennifer Gray and the principal as the two that stood out for me as far as anybody. We talked about the, the chemistry between Cameron and Ferris, but the chemistry between Ed Rooney and Grace throughout this movie, the two of them, Edie McClurg, who we've covered previously, she was Mallory's mom in Natural Born Killers, and she's yeah. the secretary here. 
they were so funny together when when he said when he's talking about Ferris and Ed Rooney's like, I don't trust this kid any further than I could throw him. And Grace just goes, Well, Ed, with your bad knee, you shouldn't be throwing anybody. <laughs> <laughs> just the two of them. And I read that most of their scenes together were improvised, and that's it kind of seems that way. And Edie McClurg has actually been in like several John Hughes movies, so they have like a working relationship together. Just I thought they were really good. Jackie, who from the sidecast kind of stood out for you? Wow, I think you guys have touched on everybody here. And I'm right on the same page. I'm really happy with these castings. These are a lot of vibrant actors and recognizable roles. I can definitely remember them and their performances. Jeffrey Jones as Ed Rooney. What a creepy, aggressive principal. (laughs) Ruthless. Wow. And he really played that role well. I thought that was a good casting for him. But he is one of those people who legitimately creeps me out. I do think I heard he was in jail for nasty stuff. Not ideal. So, yeah, there was some uh, there was some child porn charges in Oakland. Yeah, not, yeah. He, so that adds great. a whole other level of creepy to this. There's didn't he pass away? No, he's still alive. Yeah. There was a there was a Deadwood. He was in Deadwood, which I didn't watch, but there was a Deadwood movie from 2019, and he was in it. So he's still oh. he's still working. Another creepy movie that he was in that I really enjoyed was with John Ritter, Stay Tuned. Oh, Stay Tuned was great. Uh, yeah. yeah, great movie. Well, he played the creepy guy. In the, he plays the creepy guy in That's what, all of them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was his lane. He, st- he stayed in it for most of his career. He was the dad in Beetlejuice. He shows up. I don't want to praise him too much because of, of his history, but he was, he was really good in, in this movie. A lot of like good castings that aged well in small parts. Anthony, you mentioned Charlie Sheen, and I'm sure we're going to talk about him a little more. What an 86 for Charlie Sheen. Platoon, this, and Lucas, which I have not seen in a very long time with Corey Haim. I love that movie, and he was a big part of it. So big 86 for Charlie Sheen. But I think one of the the scenes that most people might remember from this movie, Ben Stein. I was just going to say Ben Stein. As the yeah. economics Can't teacher. Can't forget him. <laughs> yeah, um, I... I think it's someone when you when you ask your friend a question and they don't know the answer, you might Bueller, Bueller. Bueller. <laughs> or you know maybe if I had kids, I might ask them a question if they just stared at me, Bueller, Bueller. That's, that's something <laughs> like people just say to one another when and they don't even know where this thing they're saying came from. So it's just that's one of the many things that came from this movie. Christy Swanson had a like one scene and she was really funny. This was six years before Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So she was uh, someone who was going to come up big. Uh, just a lot of like good people in small parts. Any like small parts, Anthony, that I just mentioned or something that I missed? Really no talking, but it was funny because you see Louis Anderson twice in the movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, Louis Not Anderson, even... he's the flower delivery guy. And then he's the, I think he's the clown right next to the girl who's trying to do the, the sexual doctor thing. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I noticed him and like I was like, is that Louis Anderson with hair? I didn't even realize he had hair. Yeah. Yeah. And this was at 86. So this was two years before he was in Coming to America. Yeah. There's so many, so many good people. What a big year for the box office. 1986. This was the 10th highest grossing movie. Do we know what the number one is? Anyone? Anyone? Something gun. Anyone? Anyone? (laughs) (laughs) Anthony. What was it, Anthony? Sorry, we lost you. Back to school. 
It was not back to school. Back to school was number four. The number one was Top Gun. Oh. Made 176 million dollars as as we're about two months away from Top Gun two, all these years later. But yes, and now you don't you just don't see this anymore because everything's streaming. So I said in the beginning that this was my number one John Hughes movie. Obviously, he's he directed eight movies. Um, this was right after The Breakfast Club. This was his last teen movie that he did. After this, he would do Planes, Trains, Automobiles, Uncle Buck. And the last movie he directed was Curly Sue. He obviously wrote Home Alone. And we kind of get like a, a little bit of, I guess, like a prequel to Home Alone almost. I, I kind of thought about that when I was watching the Ed Rooney scenes in Ferris's house where he just gets like annihilated. Um, he gets kicked in the face hilariously three times by Jennifer Grey. I, that was actually edited. It was one kick that they just ran back three times. The kicks are just hilarious. He, he almost gets attacked by the dog. He loses his wallet. His suits gets torn. His car gets towed. So I, I did think this was four years before Home Alone, also written by John Hughes. Um, where do you rank this, Jackie, on your John Hughes lexicon? John Hughes has so many home runs. Yeah. Since we talked about Home Alone so extensively in our previous episode, I've had this new appreciation for not only Home Alone, but for John Hughes in general and really getting a better understanding of his style and his knack for natural comedy. I think my top John Hughes movie would be Home Alone. And technically he just wrote that sure. one. Chris Columbus directed it, but I, I totally hand it to him here for Ferris Bueller. He wrote and directed this film. So, yeah. and I guess he wrote the script in under a week. He's known for really cranking out his scripts really quickly. So I, I, I respect that fast turnaround for making such a quality script and an interesting story. Yeah, he went to the studio and he said, I want to do this movie about a kid who takes a day off from school. And that's all I got so far. And he had such like a good rapport with the studio that they just said, yeah, OK, okay here, sure. have money. And he wrote this script in like less than a week. And right. then filming started shortly after that. So, I mean, you have to, you know, for a studio just to off of one sentence, just to hear here's a truck full of money. Do what you need to do. What a As, pitch. You know, yeah. <laughs> Anthony, same question to you. Where does this rank in your your John Hughes sphere? It's one one a with me with the two films. It's this and the Breakfast Club. Okay, all the two my two favorite John Hughes movies. I remember seeing Breakfast Club as a kid and being like, "Wow, this is just phenomenal." But the impressiveness of this film is crazy. Like you said, he wrote this film in six days. Yeah, literally wrote this film in six days, and this is still holding up. 30 years, almost 30 years later, it's still holding up as one of the greatest comedies of all time. In six days, he wrote it. That's just insane to think that you would think it's one of these trashy movies that comes out. Like, it's just the genius. And he just didn't miss in the 80s. Like, St. Elmo's Fire, Breakfast Club, this, and then Planes, Trains, and all. He just couldn't, he, he didn't, everything he touched just turned to gold. Yeah, he also wrote uh, National Lampoon's Vacation. Just yes. like, you know, he was either directing or in, he wrote, he was involved somehow in like all these 80s classics, just a legend. And this, this was, uh, for me, this was his apex. Most people would probably have this in their top three somewhere when you think of John Hughes. When whether, you think of John Hughes, yeah. Yeah. 
All right, so cool. Why don't we uh, why don't we take a quick break and then we'll go into our favorite scenes. All right, we're back. Favorite scenes. So the first one I have here, I just have written down is Ben Stein, and we kind of we kind of alluded to it earlier. Bueller, Bueller. You know, I was a substitute teacher for a while, so taking attendance, no one's paying attention. No one's listening to you. It's just you have to say the name six times. And so many times I'm just like Bueller, 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 and nobody's listening. So this is this is just one of those scenes that's timeless. It transcends the movie. I don't want to keep repeating myself, but you might say this to your kid. I if I had kids, I probably would be asking them a question if they just stared at me. Bueller, Bueller. And so it was a really funny scene. You could tell his economic class is is really boring. He was he improvised the class. And he actually, he was, he was a professor and he was giving this lesson and he got a standing ovation from the crew after, and he thought it was because they really enjoyed what he was saying, but they were giving him a standing ovation because he was so boring. And that was, that was the goal of the part. So he was basically just kind of like, thanks, I guess. And really good Christy Swanson here. I wrote down her, her line where she says, what happened to Ferris? I hope I don't, I hope I don't botch this because she talks really fast and she goes, he's sick. My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid who's going with a girl who saw Ferris pass out of 31 flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious. And she was like, thank you. <laughs> Just, I thought th- this was a brief scene in the movie. We see a kid fall asleep in class. I'm sure we've all fallen asleep in class at one time. He actually has like, it looked like a, piece of spaghetti (laughs) in amidst the drool this really funny scene ben stein is in one scene he's super memorable anthony what'd you think of this scene it's phenomenal like and originally it was supposed to be filmed with him not on screen okay so it was real and but they kept it because it it just worked so well with the movie so i it just I, I, I think I was falling asleep watching it today. This is what he did for a living. Like like you said, he was an economics teacher. So he was... And, and you can see he's one of those teachers that is very knowledgeable, but very, to the point, boring type. Yeah. Vice President Bush called this something D-O-O economics. Voodoo economics. Just... <laughs> <laughs> you know, is this resonating with anyone? Probably not. I, I, I think I didn't I didn't know what this was the first time I saw it, but now I I, I kind of know all these terms. You know, when he's talking about the Great Depression, these are things like I kind of learned about later in life. But you know, the first time you see this movie, you have no idea what the hell he's talking about. I'm sure, you know, in a real life classroom setting, none of these kids are interested in the Great Depression or um trickle down economics. So so he was basically your standard uh history or business teacher. Jackie, what'd you think of this scene? I think he gets the award for the worst monotone lecture ever. (laughs) Yeah. I think we've all been there with that kind of professor at some point. And for something that wasn't going to be on screen, this turned into a great gif and memeable moment. Sure. (laughs) Going forward. (laughs) So I like how that's been preserved in time. And apparently he was the legitimately sick as an ill person in the movie. He was hopped up on cold medicine and he felt like garbage that day. 
And they just told them to start, like you said, rambling about economics and everything just kind of rolled into the perfect storm <laughs> for this unexpected performance, yet so memorable. Definitely. It's so, so signature for this film. Yeah, I love this scene. I, I love him in this. He, he's so funny. Jackie, what's the scene that you have? Oh, it's so hard to pick a favorite scene here. We did touch on the phone pranks a little earlier. So I'll go for the sympathy for Ferris moments. It's a collection of moments here that I thought was pretty fun. We've got all these phone calls at the payphone. Yep. There's flowers being delivered. There, it says, save Ferris on the water tower. There's a newspaper article in the paper that his dad is reading. There's a collection for a new kidney. He has a singing nurse and ensemble show up at his door. I should add a naughty singing nurse. Possibly a prostitute. But... <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> they know about him at the police station. The police are behind him. Uh, balloons and flowers are mysteriously delivered all day and put inside his house. We don't know how, but they are there. They are showing their support. The whole community in Chicago is surrounding Ferris. And I was having fun keeping track of those moments. Yeah, yeah, really funny. I think out of Wrigley Field, when I saw it out of Wrigley Field, it said, save Ferris when they're at the baseball <laughs> game. I was, I was like, all right, this, kid, this kid's got some pull. Yeah, Great really, details. really funny scene. It's just, you know, this legendary character and I, I guess just a legend in the town. Before before I wrap that up, since we were talking about the, the payphone, I have to mention really quick, my friend Mike pointed this out to me, that um, when the kids are standing at the payphone, talking to Ferris on the phone. There's one guy in a varsity jacket from my high school. Oh, really? That I went to. Yeah. Yeah. In Metro Detroit. So it was really crazy seeing, uh, well, there's a couple of Detroit references throughout the film. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we of course have the, the Red Wings Jersey, the Gordie yeah. Howe Jersey here. And, um, Surface level, we know that John Hughes grew up in Metro Detroit, and it was an homage to a very awesome hockey team, of course. But Hughes actually had this backstory invented for Cameron that didn't necessarily um, get put in the film, obviously. Um, so clearly, Cameron does not have a good relationship with his father. Right. Um, but Hughes said he wrote them him as he was close with his grandfather who lived in Detroit and would take him to Red Wings games. Yeah. So I like, I like that, that yeah. little extra touch there. No, definitely. Very nice. Anthony, what's the scene you like? I'm going to go with the opening monologue with okay. Ferris Bueller. Nice. That whole scene, like him basically discussing how can I go to school on such a beautiful day looking out in the sun? <laughs> And then him explaining how he got out of it. And then he, he tells you the do's and don'ts of trying to get out of school. That whole scene, him getting ready and everything, it was just so, like, bad boy-esque uh, <laughs> with him. And this is, like, this is what really made me fall in love with the movie, was this opening scene. And then it just kept going better. But just his dynamic with his family, like, I'll go to school. I can do it. I, uh, 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 I can do it. <laughs> And as soon as they leave, he was fine. And it really sets up the movie nice. And he follows it up as soon as they leave. He's like, one of the worst performances of my life. And they never doubted it for a second. Um, funny, funny Jennifer Grey in the scene, because she says I could be bleeding out of my eyeballs. And you wouldn't let me, you wouldn't let me stay home. 
she uh, she's so funny in this movie and you know she didn't she wasn't in every scene but she was uh she she was very good in this movie jackie what'd you think of that scene the opener that was such a great opener to set the tone for this film i'm so glad you brought it up anthony and it it's charming we get such a good idea of ferris bueller's character right away he's breaking that fourth wall he's breaking it down for us it's pretty fun he, he, he has a good genuineness to him and it holds up. It's hilarious. Sure. Absolutely. Another scene I have written down here, and this is kind of a brief one, but this is one of, you know, everything in this movie is kind of memorable. And I, I can't do this pod and not talk about Cameron in the car where he's angry. You know, I think we've all been there where maybe That's we just want to stay scene. home today. Yeah. Yes. We just want to stay home. We just want to be left alone. I want to watch a couple episodes of, whatever. And I don't want to be bothered, but he'll keep calling me. He'll keep calling me. He'll keep calling me until I come over. He's going to make me feel guilty. It's like, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. This is ridiculous. I'll go. He revs his engine. He gets out of the car, starts stomping on the ground. He's so angry. He doesn't, he does not want to go anywhere. And, you know, when I was younger, I was like, man, he's, he's kind of a dick, but now as like an old, like crotchety person. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I understand. He just, he just wanted to stay home and he just wanted to be left alone. So really memorable scene. Alan Ruck is just so funny in this movie. Uh, Jackie, what'd you, what'd you think of that scene? Oh, I'm so glad you brought it up because that was next on my list too. And I wasn't okay. sure we were going to point that out. I'm sure we have a lot of crossover. Yes. Yes. It's in such a relatable little scene with this internal conflict poor Cameron is going through. I've always felt kind of sympathetic for him going through this because seriously, Cameron is suffering from anxiety. And again, I sympathize with that so much. He seriously needs some help. And it makes me question, is Ferris a dick for not listening to his friend and pressuring him to do what he wants or is he giving his friend the little nudge that he needs to finally get out and have some fun you know it's kind of a a balance there where you can't really quite assign that meeting but Cameron well I guess ultimately he has a fun day and he breaks out of this this zone that he's in he had, certainly has quite a journey. I'm inclined to think it's the latter there because he he does mention in a scene where Ferris just says, uh, "I bet I bet he's sitting in his car like debating whether or not he he wants to go out." And he, he and, you know, sure Cameron. enough, he's, he's in that scene. So these mm -hmm. two know each other very well. He basically called out. So I'm, I think it's the second the latter of what you said there. He he just needs to give Cameron that nudge to get out. And ultimately, he did go out, enjoyed the whole day. He had a blast. Maybe not at the end of the day. We, we don't see what happens post-car scene. But yeah, really funny scene. Anthony, what did you think of Cameron in the car? Oh, I mentioned it earlier. I love this scene because it's just like, do I, don't I? Do you know how many times I still do this in my car? Like, I, <laughs> Yes. And I'm like, do I really want to drive right now? Like, <laughs> I have a couch. <laughs> Got snacks. I got snacks. Why do I want to leave? <laughs> but so I I can relate to this, and I I've done this too. Like I've banged on this steering wheel. Like I don't want to go. <laughs> like a three year old having a tantrum sometimes in my car. But it's it's definitely very relatable. Uh, now more than younger. Sure. 
yeah, the parallels of how you look at this movie when you're a teenager as opposed to an older person. And this is just one of those scenes that you might look at differently 20 years later. I want to add on to that since we touched on it slightly. I do think Ferris is pressuring Cameron to do a lot that day. (laughs) Maybe he could have been a little bit more sympathetic to his friend. He was definitely using his friend. He called him up and does Ferris have a car? No, he has a computer. Cameron has the car. Cameron brings over his beater car. And he says, no, that's not good enough. You, we got to use the nice car for the Sloan Act. And yeah. he pressures him to take his father's precious car out. There, there are some moments when, when Ferris is not exactly nice to Cameron, but it's entertaining nonetheless. I feel, I feel like you're 100% correct, but he was probably correct in saying because Cameron's car was a piece of shit so if they pulled up to the high school oh no that wouldn't have worked Mm -mm. in that car definitely wouldn't have worked somehow he just starts making out with Sloan right in front of the principal (laughs) under the pretense that he's her father Mm -hmm. and he just that's how it is in their family you know no question there and he's maybe 30 feet away from this guy who is the the vein of the bane of his existence in Ferris Bueller and in puts on a top hat and a trench coat he's like okay yeah that that's definitely this girl's father and not not the the reason i get out of bed in the morning to ruin this kid's life and so that was kind of a nitpick in the movie but you know you just suspend disbelief to a certain degree jackie what's another scene you have oh let's see can we talk about the timeline absolutely this movie are you gonna nitpick so i'm gonna nitpick it sure let's have it because actually, I didn't realize until I started analyzing the film for this show <laughs> that this timeline is slightly unrealistic. Oh, it's terrible. For yeah. a real person. But <laughs> let's break it down. So first, he calls in sick. Then he takes a shower and he's playing around the house while he's giving us his monologue. Then he gets Cameron to finally come over. And that takes some convincing, as we just discussed. He's got the call to Ed Rooney. Then he's got to go pick up the Ferrari. Then he's got to go pick up Sloan from the school with his elaborate scheme. Then they've got to drive to downtown Chicago from their suburb, wherever that is. Then they've got to park their car in the parking garage. And, you know, finding parking in Chicago, that's a project in itself. (laughs) And then they go to the Sears Tower. They stop by the stock exchange. They have a fancy restaurant lunch. They go to a Cubs game. Then they go to the art museum. Then they party at the parade. They go for a leisurely swim at who knows house. Yeah. And they then they run the Ferrari backwards. And then Ferris literally runs home by 6 p.m. And the baseball game, a bit your your standard baseball game by itself is three hours, so yeah. that's a that's a good chunk of the day right there. I also wondered like where they got all the money for this stuff. Yeah, apparently a fiver was enough to tip the shady guy <laughs> at the garage. <laughs> you're or you're maybe in very good hands. <laughs> yeah, where they get the money to go to this expensive restaurant for lunch, where he posed as the. I'll, I'll throw another nitpick when he. He's Abe Froman, the Sausage King of Chicago. What, what do they do when Abe Froman actually showed up? I'm assuming he eventually got there for his reservation and said, hi, I'm Abe Froman. And that's just one of those things, 86, you know, this happened in 2022. And I was the, the maitre d' at this restaurant. I might Google 
you know, Abe Froman, you can probably get a picture of this guy right there cooking sausage. You're like, okay, wait, that's not, that's not you. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> but yeah, there are a lot of nitpicks in this movie. The timeline is, is totally out of, out of whack. Yeah. You nailed it there, Jackie. Nothing more to add. There's just, and then at the end of the, at the end of the day, we get Rooney. It's presumably like six, seven o'clock. There's a school bus in the end. There's credits. a school bus with kids driving yeah. home. Yeah. And okay. Sure. It's six, six o'clock full of kids. You know, maybe sometimes you get like an after school program where you have like maybe five or six kids, but this was a full school bus at 6 PM, presumably just, yeah. For some of the, some of the things in this movie, we got to uh, suspend disbelief a little bit. Anthony, what's another scene you got? Uh, Another one I have the parade. All of a sudden he's on top of the float lip syncing and it's so phenomenal. And still to this day, it's brought up in pop culture. Sure. For years, it's been brought up this scene. This scene is the scene of the movie. Like you said, this is the twist and shout will never be. It will always be done like this. Anyway, things, parties, anywhere. Twist and shout is done like this. This is the way it's done. And I was when I was doing my notes for this last week, I, I think I messaged both of you. I was like, I just stopped what I was doing. This scene, I haven't seen this movie in a couple of years until we agreed to do it for this pod. And I just put my phone down. I put my computer down. I was just watching the scene, just like still in awe of this, even though I've seen this movie so many times. This is just such a perfect scene in this movie. Totally unrealistic. How do you get on the float, you know, to get on a parade? How the dancers on the float are just accepting that this guy is there. Why is there a parade on a random, this is a school day in the afternoon. Why is Chicago just randomly having a parade of this caliber? There's so many people, everybody's dancing. They're perfectly choreographed dance routine. It, you know, totally unrealistic, but perfect. And why, I love the scene so much. Why is the security guard moving Cameron away from the float, but letting Ferris stay on the float, even though he had nothing to do with the parade at all. <laughs> Right? (laughs) Jackie, any parade thoughts? Yes, absolutely a signature scene for the movie. This shows us how lucky Ferris is and how he has like no reservations and how he just gets away with everything. (laughs) (laughs) But I had questions too, Dave, like where is this music coming from? Everybody seems mysteriously choreographed. There are people coming out of nowhere, dancing on the stairs all in time with the music. And there's people hanging off the building and they're dancing too. I mean, it's a good fun time. I love this scene. It's okay. We'll let it slide. I do have a funny story about it with Jennifer Grey. She wanted to be a part of this scene, but obviously she couldn't with her character so she put on a big bouffant wig and showed up as an extra (laughs) yep (laughs) so that she could be there (laughs) really funny and another just to add another nitpick we have ferris's dad presumably high in his office in a building and he's dancing to the music can you hear the parade from you know presumably the the top floor he must have been right there yeah (laughs) he was just looking down right so just another nitpick but and how did he his son on top of the floats. Yeah, yeah. Didn't notice. Well, he didn't notice Sloan in the cab when. Totally not. Yeah, yeah, this is my son's girlfriend, presumably for a long time, and you know, and Ferris Matthew Broderick was really tickling her feet there to make her laugh like she was. <laughs> but yeah, the sunglasses just you know worked for Superman with regular glasses. I guess it works for Sloan with the sunglasses here. The next scene that I have written down here, this is kind of towards the end. I'm getting towards the end of the movie here. 
if either of you are going to rewind, that's fine. But I got um, Cam- the scene where Cameron destroys the car. I just, this wasn't a funny scene. He kind of just goes into shock when he, <laughs> when he realizes these parking attendants drove, drove the car for about presumably a couple thousand miles. I think it had a hundred on it at the beginning of the day, like 106. And then it had, what did it have? Like 3000? No, it had 314. Okay. So yeah, a lot of miles. Does that work, Anthony? You're a car guy driving a no. car backwards. That Does that? No. no. Okay. The Would old... that put more miles on it, driving it backwards? No, I, it doesn't. Just because you have to move. It's something with the moving of the vehicle. The only way to, to turn back on a Dominator, not that I know. Like he said, you have to take the odometer off and spin the wheel. Okay. All right. Yeah, it didn't seem like that was a realistic plan. Obviously, it wasn't because they had the car moving backwards with with the ramp on it, and it was doing nothing. So, yeah, just I wonder what, like, they don't really give, like, a backstory of Cameron's dad and how bad he is. I don't know if he's just, like, controlling, and he's just kind of a dick, or he's actually abusive, but... Cameron is really fired up in this scene and it's just really good Alan Ruck performances performance. And it ends with him accidentally kicking the car. He does kick the shit out of the car, dents it a little bit, but then I don't think he meant to send the car careening out of their, their showroom window into the grass to be destroyed. Uh, Anthony, you got excited when I mentioned this scene. What'd you think of it? Oh, so great. Like, you know, he's complaining. And I don't think it's more of his father being a dick, but I think his father is very neglectful. Sure. He basically says he you care more about this car than you do me as he's beating the shit out of it. It's like he's slamming it and nothing's happening. And all of a sudden he just gently puts his hand on it and it just flies in reverse through the window. Really doesn't get, like, you know, and... It's sad because, you know, you're going to lose a Ferrari. We finally, It's not really a Ferrari, but yep. um, it's still, it was like, wow. You were worried about mileage. Have fun. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was just a very funny and just also depressing. Because, like, you know, you, and I know Jackie was saying how Ferris is, could be portrayed as the ass throughout the movie with a lot of the things. But. Right away, he did offer to step up and take the blame, though. And True. so I think he does care about Cameron a lot. He wanted this day not only for himself, but himself and Cameron, because they've mentioned it a couple times throughout the movie. Also, they're both going to different colleges, so they're not going to see each other like they used to. Sure. And yeah, really powerful scene because we see Sloan and Ferris, who are pretty much upbeat and happy throughout this movie. But you see the looks on their face when... Cameron's just riffing about his dad and how he's being pushed around his whole life. And they just look like probably as shocked as the audience did at that point. Jackie, what'd you think of that scene? I really like this scene as a catharsis for Cameron. I remember the first time I watched this and it bothered me that this happened. It was very a traumatic event in the film but I think something had to go wrong that day Ferris try he did try to take responsibility but this was on Cameron and this was Cameron's catharsis he was able to let go he finally relaxed it was so interesting to me that he went catatonic after the shock of finding out that the car has been driven around like we were saying and he didn't have that same reaction when he pushed the car 
accidentally out of the garage. So it's a really interesting and unique scene and reaction that's taken place here. I thought this was a, a perfect ending for this film. Very unique. I, I kind of compared it to, you know, the feeling when you're like, holy, you, you might oversleep and you're like, holy shit, I'm going to be late for work. And like the, the, the fear of I'm going to be late for work is just so terrifying. But then once you're actually late and it's, it's happened, it's like, all right, yeah, what are we going to do now? And I think that's kind of like Cameron with the mileage on the car was like, oh shit, how's my dad going to react? And I've actually destroyed the car. Like, all right, there's, there's nothing we can do now. This, this happened and we, we just got to deal with the, uh, the repercussions of it. The last scene that I have written down here is the end scene. Do either of you have anything before that? I have one. Okay. The police station. Okay. Yeah, Charlie Sheen. I'm bringing this up because this is in the point where Jennifer Grey is sitting next to him. And, like, you know, that he's looking at her. She's looking at him. And, like, he's she's complaining. Now, she's finally found somebody to talk to. Even though at first she was very resistant with it. And he brought out a new point into her mind is, you're not mad that Ferris is doing all this. You're getting mad that you get caught if you were to try. So it really was more of a... She got her clarity in this scene. This is when what made her... You, you see her get a little bit happier throughout the, the course of the scene, talking with him and everything, and then they end up kissing. Um, it was just a good little quick scene, and then when she gets picked up, it's funny that, you know, we're pulling for Ferris. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, the cop says it to to his mom. She's like, oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> so I, I thought that was an important scene for her to get her catharsis. Yeah, definitely. It was funny. And I don't know that they thought having Charlie Sheen in this bit part in 1986 would age quite the, the way it did. But it was just, you know, you look, this is one of those you look back on all these years later and you're like, holy shit, this is like Charlie Sheen in this like bit part in this movie. And it's just really nice. He, he was really good, even briefly, just on the same level as Ben Stein or Christy Swanson. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed that scene as well. All right. So the end scene, this is following the, the police, the police scene. We have um, we have a high speed chase between uh, Jeannie and and her mom in the car. I wondered why she was driving, but that's another nitpick that we could just probably just leave alone. Why Jeannie was driving and her mom wasn't, and how they were able to elude the cops for so long, and how they also got pulled over. Presumably, made it home in time. They were they got pulled over and they were back home in like two minutes. That must have been like a really quick pullover, but <laughs> so. You know, we do have a lot of nitpicks, even though this movie is excellent. There there are some things you can raise your hand about. Um, we see Ferris. He's running through a backyard. He runs through a barbecue. Funniest part of this is where he runs he runs past two hot girls sunbathing, and he comes back. He's like, hi, Ferris Bueller. How you doing? <laughs> and he, again, I guess his dad is maybe he's just high all the time. I don't know. But he, his dad drives right next to him, looks at him, and just like, huh, okay. I love when they get to the house. And uh, Ferris's mom says all the things Jeannie did. She got two speeding tickets. She cost us the Vermont deal. Um, he very dryly says, I think we should shoot her. Just no, <laughs> no laughter or anything. Just you think he's kidding, but you don't know. And he's very good delivery there by, by Lyman Ward as the father. I thought he was really funny in this. 
that's what I think we should shoot her. Just, just deadpan. Loved it. And this, this ends with Ferris going home, but running into Rooney and ultimately getting blackmailed by Jeannie who throws him his wallet. And that's the end of the scene. Just really memorable scene. This was done in a, I believe there was a, a car commercial with Matthew Broderick now where he kind of reenacted this scene. That's how, um, there's so many iconic scenes in this movie. So Jackie, what'd you think of the, the end montage of this movie? It was a really good wrap up to this film. Everything was very satisfying in this scene. And I was kind of questioning though, like why does Jeannie finally change her mind? Can you guys explain it to me? I think it was, she had the choice between Rooney wins or her brother wins. Okay. Okay. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah, you gotta you gotta uh, pick one at one point. I thought it was more of she realized she had him dead to rights. She never really wanted him to get caught in the first place, like after that conversation that she had. And that's why she ended up protecting him. And also for the fact that maybe she saw the wallet and realized who it was. Well, it's another thing. Did she not realize who it was when she kicked him in the face three times? Because she know what your principal looks like. That's what I kind of thought. I feel like I would have recognized my but principal. Also, that would be very shocking. Yeah, but you recognize him, but you're also like, why is this dude in my kitchen? So that was my take on it. It might have been like the type of hunting where you want to just catch something and then let it go. Just the satisfaction of knowing you caught it is good enough. You don't need to kill it. I like that analogy. Okay. I'm going to go with that. Me. I like that. You know me and my hunting analogies. I'm just just big, big hunter. I like it. Oh. <laughs> All right. So cool. Yeah. I think that that's a wrap on the scenes there. Just a lot of good scenes. If we if we could have probably written every scene in this movie, like every little thing that happens, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure we left it left a ton out and maybe somebody'll be like, Oh, but you didn't mention this or, or that something, but you know, could have been a, a five hour show. According to the internet, so we, we usually start these with um, our casting almost, and I've got a few here. There were so many for Ferris, and I'm like, some of these are bullshit. Like, I saw Tom Cruise listed. I'm like, no, that that, that never happened. Yeah. Probably the two most realistic ones that I saw here were John Cusack and Michael J. Fox, who I, I, I could have seen either of these. Matthew Broderick was perfect in this role, but I could have saw either of these guys. And John Cusack kind of got his big... Um, High school movie in 1989 was Say Anything, or you might even say One Crazy Summer. Michael J. Fox, obviously, this was two years after Back to the Future. I, I don't know that that would have worked. But Rob Lowe was another name that, that I saw here. I think he was. Was he cool. young enough? Yeah, yeah. At this time, he was in St. Elmo's Fire. So, huh. yeah. Uh, yeah. So I thought he, he would have worked as well, but I thought he was too cool. I thought Matthew Broderick was approach awesome yet approachable where Rob Lowe is just kind of even now I see Rob Lowe and I'm like this is this is a demigod just <laughs> and I probably, probably would have thought that in 86 too uh Anthony any of these I mean I think we're all kind of in line here that Matthew Broderick is Ferris Bueller but do you have any thoughts on either of these would they have worked no no <laughs> very simple no, Matthew Broderick is Ferris that's it he is Bueller. Bueller. <laughs> and, and that's that's who I see. You know, you close your eyes, you try to cast it now. I would still cast Matthew Broderick. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. It could work. Um, 
yeah, there there were talks of a sequel, but basically everybody was on board with it except for Matthew Broderick. John Hughes wanted it, Alan Ruck wanted it, Mia Sarah, and Broderick was firm that this doesn't need a sequel. I I agree, but I would have been there if if it if it happened. Uh, don't worry, we're gonna get one in like three weeks, probably. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Uh, Jackie, any thoughts on these castings or did you have any that I didn't mention? No, we, we have the same crossover here and yeah, I can see John Cusack maybe filling these shoes, but I, I really like Anthony. I like your firm answer. No, it's just <laughs> Matthew Broderick. He is Ferris Bueller. I'm going to go with that as well. Sure. Uh, a couple more here. I've got Emilio Estevez turned down the role of Cameron. Obviously, him and Hughes worked together in Breakfast Club. I heard that. I'm going to give this a hard no as well. I, I think um, I like the dynamic between Broderick and Ruck. And I think it's like clear that, you know, while these are two, you know, great figures here, there's a dynamic of Ferris is the alpha here. And then Cameron is the sidekick and it, it, it works well. They play well off each other where I feel like Emilio Estevez and Matthew Broderick, they might've been equals. And even in a way, maybe Estevez outshined him a little bit. So I don't know that that would have worked. Another one I had here, Molly Ringwald wanted the role of Sloan. John Hughes was content on Mia Sara. This is another one. I like Molly Ringwald, but no, I think the castings, the, the three leads here, I think are perfect. Uh, Anthony, kind of same same question here. Um, uh, you're nodding your head as a no. I, I this is one movie. There's a lot of movies I've seen. And I'm like, oh, you know what? This person would have done this better, or maybe it would have gone a little different if it was this person casted. Nobody else could be casted in any of these roles. I think every role was perfectly casted at that time period, and it really fit. And you saw because there was chemistry throughout the whole thing. The chemistry was so good, as we're talking about, according to the internet. There was two marriages from this movie. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer Grey married Matthew Broderick, and the parents married each other as well in real life. Yeah, and they were actually, well, Jennifer Grey, and this was kind of uh, like a, a little derailment on both their careers. We talked about, like, why weren't they, they have the careers that they would have wanted. Uh, about a year after this movie, they were involved in a car accident that killed two people. Yeah. Matthew Broderick and Jennifer Grey and their relationship was secret. And this was this was how the world found out about their relationship. Uh, there was no alcohol involved. Everything I looked up, it's kind of unclear as to as to what happened. It said Matthew Broderick was driving and he s- stepped over a median and killed two people who died instantly. And um, the, the just the survivor's guilt and the trauma from the accident kind of just severed their relationship. That's and it, it was cool. Yeah, pretty awful. And uh, Jennifer Grey was injured really badly. Had to have several surgeries. It was pretty terrible. It, it actually impacted the promotion for Dirty Dancing. She wasn't really involved in promotion for that movie. Pretty, pretty terrible. I did, I did have that noted on my internet stuff. So it's kind of a, a downer there. And yeah, but you did mention uh, Sydney Pickett and Lyman Ward, Mr. and Mrs. Bueller. They met on the set of this movie, got married, had two kids. They were divorced in 1992, but that that's pretty cool. And uh, Hollywood marriage, right there, definitely. <laughs> that sucks about the the car accident there. Jackie, do you have an internet thing or anything out there? Did you guys know that before Ben Stein became an actor, 
he is also a lawyer yep. in general, and he was a speechwriter for Presidents Nixon and Ford. Yeah, yeah, heavy, uh, heavy in the politics. I don't know if either of you remember the game show Win Ben Stein's Money. Yes. Okay. I never want his money though. That was not... <laughs> yeah, really, really smart guy. And uh, yeah, he, he's uh, heavily involved in politics, and then just kind of uh, through happenstance got into acting, and you know thought it was one of the more memorable parts of this movie. Um, another one that I have written down here. I don't know if either of you remember this. I've actually seen every episode of this. There was a Ferris Bueller TV show in 1990. Either of you remember this? No. I just no. learned about it yesterday. Tell okay. us about it. Okay. It was bad. <laughs> it was very bad. Really? Um, an actor named Charlie Schlatter played Ferris. And we're talking about castings at Agewell. Jeannie was played by a young Jennifer Aniston. So she was she was the sister in this. It was 1990, about five years before Friends. Yeah, the show was bad. It lasted 13 episodes. I, I caught it on syndication. And it was just one of those. I think it came out. There was another show called Parker Lewis Can't Lose. I don't know if either of you remember that one. Oh. Anthony's. No. Anthony's got it. Yeah, I love that show. Parker it was good. That was the, the superior show. Yeah, I, I think yeah, both these shows were good. So that was like. 13 episode run did not uh, resonate with anyone. They're like, this guy is not Ferris Bueller. And, but yeah, that was bad choice, but they were, you know, not the first time someone's tried to use existing IP to cash in further. Just didn't resonate here. Maybe it would today that might be on a streaming service, but nobody was tuning into broadcast TV at that time Hmm. to watch the Ferris Bueller TV show. I got one more. Either of you have any, I got a few, I got three. I got here. Go for it. Um, I will go with um, back when it was first released, its opening weekend. It actually lost to Back to School by Rodney Dangerfield. Good movie. Opening. Huh. It grossed a little bit over it, but we all know that it. this one did better than Back to School, but it was also a really good movie. Yeah. The music in this movie is great. However, it never officially had a soundtrack also. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, I got one more, but I'll let uh, I'll go with it really quick. Charlie Sheen. Uh, what's it called? He stayed up for forty eight hours for the role. Okay, for his uh, little police station cameo there. Yes, he 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 tried to to show that he was like on drugs because he was getting picked up for drugs. But I really don't think he stayed up for 48 hours just just sober. I'm just going to say that. A.K.A. Yeah. partying. <laughs> yeah, I have questions. I, I don't know that he stayed up 48 hours to look like he had a long bender, just specifically for this role. 86, one of the biggest, about to be the biggest star in the world. I don't know. I, I, I have some questions. <laughs> I have a feeling he was just like, yeah, yeah I, I stayed up 48 hours to prepare for this role. Yeah. I had orange juice and milk. Taking really seriously. That's all I had. Orange juice and milk. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a couple. Sure. Apparently, the first cut of this movie was a disaster. Yes. It tested really poorly. And even Broderick, Ruck, and Sarah walked away from it cringing. They didn't even laugh the first time they saw it. So they went back to the cutting room floor, did a lot of cutting and splicing, apparently, 
and turned it into the version that we enjoy today. Yes, that was, uh, I read that too. And there's a book about the career of John Hughes called You Couldn't Ignore Me If You Tried. And also I read in the same book that Hughes wanted a strip club scene where the three of them go to a strip club. And this is, we see the line in the movie where Ferris is talking to the audience and he's talking about Cameron and he says that Cameron's going to marry the first girl that has sex with him. And them in the strip club would have kind of added some more effect to that scene, seeing the strippers walk up to Cameron and see him be mesmerized. But ultimately the studio did not let John Hughes have the scene or they convinced him, depending on what you read on the internet. Um, But ultimately there was no strip club scene in this movie, which is weird. I could have taken that over the stock exchange. I don't know why they went to the stock exchange in the middle of the day. I I don't know. High school kids who are like, yeah, let's, let's, let's go there. Um, probably they're leaning towards a strip club but i don't know if some suit at the the studio vetoed that that was my last internet thing did either was that a wrap i have one more funny one all right i thought this was the most random thing so i had to mention it they combined this with a set and a real house It seems to be a John Hughes thing. So I really respect that practicality there. And one thing that really bugged John Hughes was that the house was actually in Long Beach, California, not in the suburbs of Chicago. And if you look closely, there's eucalyptus trees growing everywhere, which is not possible in the Midwest. (laughs) And that really bugged John Hughes. But we can let that slide, right? (laughs) Yeah, we let a lot of other things slide. Yes, indeed. And also at the point where Ferris opens up the blinds to look out of the house, that's a point where he's in the set. And they trained these squirrels to run by in the shot. (laughs) I guess this is according to the internet, but the article seems legit. Sure. And they had two squirrels that they um, were able to coerce across the line because John Hughes wanted to make it look as natural as possible. And I never realized it was a set. So I guess it's pretty convincing, but, and then the squirrel ran away afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just one more to hop on before we we jump into trivia. Um, The, the high school in this is kind of like an early precursor to the multiverse. Um, it's Shermer High School, which was also the high school in Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles, two other John Hughes movies. So I don't know if uh, Principal Vernon from Breakfast Club and Ed Rooney were friends, colleagues, or this is just the different version. If, if we have Doctor Strange and pulling out um, the two different principals in the multiverse of Shermer High School. But yeah, he used this high school in uh, three of his, his high school themed movies. So that'll do it for, according to the internet, um, Anthony, I know you, you always come with a trivia, so you're our guest. What do you got? During the, the end scene where he's running home, the first person he passes is setting up yellow chairs. How many yellow chairs is he setting up? <sighs> is it three, four, six, or five? You know, and I don't know if you listened to our last episode on Rush Hour, and I don't even know if I said it off mic or on, I, but I was talking about your trivia questions when we do our Sopranos podcast together. I'm like, yeah, I, I really need to start, like, writing down, like, what kind of, like, bread Tony Soprano is eating. Because, because Anthony is, like, on point with these these questions. 
And I just got to, I got to take a guess because I did not, I was not noting that down. And I was like, I should be writing down these little details for Anthony's inevitable trivia question. Um, were, were, four was an option. Yes. Okay. That'll be my guess. Okay. Jackie. I'll say three. Okay. It was actually five yellow chairs. Ah, all right. So you got it. You stumped us you both. Got me. <laughs> All right. From now, the next show you do with us, I'm just writing everything down. I'm, I'm going to write like <laughs> the the length and inches of the grass, like everything. I'm just... <laughs> Seven orange leaves. <laughs> All right. Good question. You got us there. Jackie, would you like to go first or would you like me to? Sure. I'll go first this time. Hit it. All right. So did you guys know that the Ferrari is not actually a Ferrari? It's I a did. replica. Yeah, there were three different replicas built for this Ferrari. So, sorry guys, it's not authentic. But one of these replicas sold for a very pretty penny. How much did it sell for? 235,000, 300,000, or you know what, if you want, you can prices right this and say higher or lower than one of those two options. Um I feel like this is I'm going to go with the more expensive option. 300,000 was the second choice. All right. That'll be me. I'll go okay. 300. 235. You said 235, Anthony? I think it was actually 238 to be exact. Ooh. Oh, look oh. at this details guy. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, my internet said that it was 235. Um, I guess you guys are technically right in the middle of that. But Anthony, you got the right idea. Congrats. Here, so I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> I have a bonus question. Oh, all right. Cool. Let's hit it. All right. Kind of along Anthony's theme here. Um, what did the license plate say? Oh, I know this. For for who? Um, well, you can I know they were, the answer if you know I it. know they were themed for John oh. Hughes's movies. I know the one, well, Cameron said nervous, I think. It was N-R-V-O-S -E or some, some variation of nervous. I know somebody had a breakfast club license plate. Somebody had a vacation license plate. I was talking about the Ferrari. Oh, the Ferrari. Shit. I'm sorry. I thought oh. that was. That no, was no, that's, no. <laughs> one, oh. I, I know the license plate were John Hughes movie themes. I don't remember specifically the Ferrari. Anthony, it looks like he has it. He's going to get I... me again. Uh, did it say FBDO D zero? Um, no. I mean, Dave, you were technically on the right track when you said nervous. That 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 was correct. Oh, I was that was sure if you were talking okay. about the Ferrari or not. So. Okay, I I knew one of Cameron's cars, whether it was his dad's. Oh, or his. there were multiple. Oh, that's right. There were multiple cars yeah. there. I'm gonna have I to knew take a closer Cameron... look at that. In the Cameron family, there was a license plate that said uh, nervous. That was that was the one on the Ferrari. All right, cool. Good question, Jackie. Yeah, really. That was a good one. All right. So I'm going here by strictly the eight movies that John Hughes has directed. He's obviously written several others and been involved in production with many others, but he directed eight movies. So which of these actors has not appeared in a John Hughes directed film? Okay. Robert Downey Jr., Steve Carell, Bill Paxton, Patrick Swayze, Alec Baldwin, or Woody Harrelson? Anthony, 
give it a give it a go. I have to go Steve Carell. Steve Carell. Okay. That was my initial instinct as well, actually. Okay. And both of you said Steve Carell? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Steve Carell is incorrect. He mm. was actually in Hughes' last film, Curly Sue, which starred uh, Jim Belushi. <sighs> yeah. And I don't think I've seen that movie since it came out. I was like 10 years old. But that was John Hughes' last directed film, Curly Sue. The correct answer was Patrick Swayze. He's Swayze has never been in a John Hughes film. Robert Downey Jr. was in two. He was in 16 Candles and Weird Science. Uh, Bill Paxton was in Weird Science. Alec Baldwin was in She's Having a Baby. And Woody Harrelson had a cameo in She's Having a Baby as Woody from Cheers. Those kind of an obscure cameo with him, him and Ted Danson in the scene as their their characters in Cheers. So no, uh, no linking of Patrick Swayze and John Hughes. Good one. Yeah. So I think we all got each other on the trivia this week. It (laughs) wasn't a big week for correct answers. (laughs) All right. Awards time. So we got two here. We, we, on this show, we do MVP and sixth man Um, for MVP for me. I, you know, I thought about getting fancy. This movie's called Ferris Bueller's day off for a reason. There's it's it's the lead character. Um, So I didn't think about this one too much. Um, I went Matthew Broderick MVP. Anthony, did you go a different direction or? Uh, I went, like you said, only one way to go with this. This is his movie for a reason. So, yeah, he's MVP on this one. All right, Jackie. Yes, this is the signature role for Matthew Broderick. Definitely MVP for him. Okay. Yeah, no divergence. There's no point in trying to get edgy here. But the second award, sixth man, just for anyone who doesn't watch basketball six man is when the non-star of the team comes into the movie or the game and lights it up for a few minutes, goes back to the bench, lets the stars take over so many candidates for this one. Um, there's a lot you, you could have went Charlie Sheen. If you wanted to go, I think I would have allowed Alan Rucker, Mia Sarah, although I, I thought they were kind of in too much of the movie. So I was looking specifically at the side characters and for me, this was a two-horse race. I really, really like Edie McClurg as Grace. I thought she was so funny in this, in this movie as the secretary. Thought her, especially her interaction with uh, Jennifer Grey, where she calls, she, calls, she calls her a little asshole after she walks <laughs> away. I, I just like her one-liners. Most of her dialogue was improv. I thought she was really funny. And I almost gave this to her, but ultimately I went with Ben Stein. I just, his scene is so memorable. It's It's brief. And you probably walk away from this movie thinking of the parade scene or Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. So just the second most memorable part of this movie for me was Ben Stein. So that was that was my sixth man of the movie. Anthony, which way did you land? Um, like you said, it really could have gone to so many people. Rooney um, was another one. Um but the one scene that really tied together um, Janie's character, I went with Charlie Sheen. I thought that little, like another small scene, but it was a nice dialogue between the two. And basically this drugged out guy is basically giving her advice on how to get through life and making her understand the meaning of what she's going through. So I gave him my sixth man. Okay. I can't argue with it. Nice. Jackie, where'd you land? I was almost tempted to give uh, Sixth Man to Jeannie 
because she's this side character who has this complete arc throughout the film. Yeah. And that's unique for a side character. And I also considered uh, Rooney. He was one creepy ass principal. And <laughs> <laughs> he, he was pretty funny too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that guy creeps me out too much. So I think I have to cross him off my list. <laughs> <laughs> also, like you're saying, Dave, like Eddie McClurg as Grace, she had a really fun performance. And now knowing that she improvised, a lot yeah. of that, she's just one snarky little secretary. And <laughs> I kind of like that. And then we have Ben Stein, who, again, signature role for this. I'll always remember him in this role. Memeable, gifable. <laughs> so hilarious. All these people made me laugh in this film. It's such a hard choice to make. Um Gosh, I'm going to go with the snarky secretary. Cool. So we all got Eddie we all McClurg. Got, we all got a different one. Cool. That'd be a good, uh, be a good post. Yeah. No, I like it. We all got a different one. Yeah. Great choices. I could have went. I could have went with either of yours just as easily as I went with Ben Stein. Likewise. I'm sure probably the same thing went on for both of you. Oh yeah. So yeah. Good. Good choices there. Unanimous on the MVP, but we went different directions with the six man. But all were very viable choices. Love this movie. Great talking about it with both of you. Anthony, what's something good you watched this week? Well, we won't talk about Indiana Jones then. Fair. <laughs> I caught up on the, the last two episodes of each show. Oh, well, one on each show. Um, first, Severance. It was just a mind-blowing episode. Another mind- it's been amazing beginning to end so far. I, I, I almost didn't even watch it. Like I literally got Apple... TV last week, I decided, hey, you know what, there's a couple of things on here that I wanted to see. And I, I got it actually for Morning Show and Ted Laszlo. Uh, but then I was like, I really like this. I like this guy. Let me let me see, because I liked him in Parks and Rec. Yeah, Adam Scott. Um, And I was like, and then I saw the cast. You had Christopher Walken. You got John Totoro. Um, I Patricia Arquette, I couldn't think of her name. For yep. And then, like the first episode, I was like, oh, okay, I'm done. I'm sucked in. That's it. And in this last episode was just mind blowing. I don't know if you, I know you do, Dave. I don't know, Jackie. Do you follow that show yet? I haven't checked it out yet, but you guys are making a very convincing argument lately. So I'm, I'm very curious. And this isn't, it's not a limited series. It's already got picked up season two. So this is so many of the things that we're watching now are like eight episode limiteds, and this is going to be a running series, which is kind of refreshing. It, that, get, it got picked up for season two. There will be a season two, and so it's nice. Two episodes left in the season. I know they're not going to have to just really quick rush everything up to tie all these knots. So, you know, we're, we're probably going to get left with a cliffhanger like we were last week. Like holy, like Anthony, I I I knew right after I watched it because I I think I. They air, I think they put them on Apple at like nine o'clock and I happened to be home this Thursday. I was like nine o'clock, let's get, let's get to Apple. So I watched it like almost as soon as it dropped on the service and I, I figured nobody watched it yet, but I was like tempted to message you at like 10 02 on Thursday night. Like, holy shit, do you watch Severance? I didn't even know it goes on then. If I would have known, I would have watched it on Thursday, but I didn't want, and it would have been better because I had to wait until Sunday to watch it. Okay. 
<laughs> but yeah, it's it's a phenomenal show. Ben Stiller directed. There's nine episodes. Ben Stiller directed the first three. Somebody else did the next three, and then Ben Stiller did the final three. So we, I think we're at seven now. So there's two left. It's just yeah, it's he was unexpected. On, he was on the Howard Stern show recently, a couple of weeks ago, talking about it. And he's like, I hope we get picked up. I guess it wasn't picked up at the time. Mm-hmm. And he's like, because I have a lot of plans for this show. And that just made me more excited once I started watching it, remembering that that interview. So I know this is going to be a really, really good show. And he's a phenomenal director. Previously won an Emmy for Escape at Denimora, also starring Patricia Arquette. So the, the two of them have worked together before. Just, yeah, excellent show. Um, hopefully more people watch it. He directed Broderick, Cable Guy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's so many reality bites, Tropic Thunder, Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Just, you know, low key, phenomenal director. Uh, and the other one, um, Winning Time. Yes. So I'll let you talk about Winning Time, but we'll go into it together. But it, well, yeah. it's, you know, what's what's there to say? I mean, we talk about it. It's, it's obviously it's a Lakers show from the 80s. It's just very cool. It's a very cool show. I don't know. You know, I'm hesitant to say it's awards bait. But I feel like it will be a presence at the awards. It's just a really fun show, especially if you are a basketball fan like you and I are. But I, I feel like this show and Jackie, I know I, we, you and I have talked about it. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is a show that you're into, even if you don't like basketball, because just the performance of John C. Riley, like Jason Siegel shows up in episode four. Like that's a really big star. Tracy Letts is in this for like probably an episode and a half. Adrian Brody is just like the fifth lead in this show. It's, it's crazy. And these guys, these unknown at Quincy Isaiah, who's like an unknown actor until this is playing magic Johnson and he's playing them like perfectly. That's a tough role to cast. Like if you put the wrong person in this part, the whole show falls apart. And this is just really phenomenal. I think we, Adam McKay, I think he is better when he's behind the scenes as opposed to directing because don't look up. I don't know what either of your thoughts were on that movie did not work for me at all. I was like, I was watching the Oscars the other night. Why is this nominated for best picture? I, I don't understand. I think Amy Schumer had a funny line in the beginning of that show where she said to him, she said directly to Adam McKay, I guess, no, I guess they don't look up the reviews for this movie <laughs> <laughs> because it, it was not, I didn't, I just, you know, maybe some people out there like it. This movie just did not work. And I feel like that got nominated for best picture just because DiCaprio was in it. And but McKay behind the scenes, which he is on this show, it's it's just brilliant. And it's one of my favorite shows so far this year. Money. So, yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, hopefully more people are watching it. Jackie, what's something good you watch this week? I watched a ton of fun things this week. I yes. finally got a little bit of free time. Nice. So that was that was exciting. Uh, first, I watched Rumble in the Bronx. And I hadn't seen that before. I didn't realize it. But we were talking about Jackie Chan so much last week that I had to follow up and watch one of his really great films. I'm glad, Anthony, you said I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person on the planet who did not like Rush Hour um, (laughs) or or maybe just had a few criticisms of it. So Anthony confirmed that I'm not alone on my my (laughs) island here. (laughs) I'm on the island, Jackie. I come on the island with you. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. So, but I did want to sing the praises of this film and Jackie Chan. It has some amazing action in it, some great.
street cinematography, which Jackie Chan is known for. And this dude, he coordinates the craziest, most practical stunts. I mean, one scene, he broke his foot and they needed to continue filming. And so what they did is he had a cast all the way up half his leg uh, or like right below his knee and they put his jeans over it and then they painted a sock to look like a, a sneaker and they pulled it up over his cast so that he could finish filming this movie with a broken foot and stay on track <laughs> i mean that is jackie chan's yeah dedication to this it's amazing and i think in some shots you can you can catch it here or there but it's not bad and they didn't they didn't use cg for that so i have so much respect for that you know they also have another scene where um there's a huge fight in uh i believe it's a convenience store and it took almost a month to film this small two-minute fight scene because they just get 20 seconds of footage a day at the most yeah on some so it was just really electric some off the hook action great kung fu um did not really enjoy the dubbed version that it, it's really hard to override that aspect of the film but jackie chan is classic i absolutely recommend it sure uh, where, uh, where'd you watch it what was it on do you remember Hmm. Gosh, I'm sorry. I don't remember where it no, was. That's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll find it out. I'll go to the internet. <laughs> also, somehow romantic comedy Wednesdays have started back up in our house. Very nice. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. And I'm really not a rom-com person at all, but I do enjoy a select few of them. One of them being The Wedding Singer. Okay. I find that movie so watchable. And so much fun. It has one of my favorite movie soundtracks. I'm really not a huge Sandler fan, okay. but this is one of my favorite roles for him. It was perfect. It kind of took him out of his funny guy self um, or his straight up comedic roles and playing the, the love interest for Drew Barrymore. Love her. That was a nice natural role for her little cuteness phase there. So yeah, yeah, just a fun throwback there. Cool, cool. No, I, I enjoyed that movie. It's one of one of the underrated Sandlers. I, I yeah, and then I think him and Drew Barrymore would go on to do two more movies together. Fifty right. Dates. Yeah, just, so they had really good chemistry when they, yep. whenever they get together. Blended also. Yep, yep. Uh, yeah, so good good choices there. I, I enjoyed both of those. I'll go a little TV. So I don't know if either of you watch this. I don't know many people who watch this. I I know Bridgette who we've had on the show is a big fan of the show Atlanta that it's been four years between seasons. And this is, this is on FX. And I actually, this, this was a pandemic watch for me. Okay. So this had been on the air for a little while. And, you know, a couple people, including Bridget said, you know, you got to watch the show. It's so funny. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I just, and, you know, the stars just never aligned. And I think it was 20 episodes. And at the beginning of the pandemic, we're, we're all just home, nothing to do. We're just watching so much shit. So I wound up like chain smoking all 20 of the first two seasons in like a month. And it, one of the most brilliant comedies I've ever seen. So it's been four years between seasons and on Hulu. Now they had the two, two episode premiere, new episodes drop every Friday. They're simultaneously filming the final two seasons, three and four. 
And this is with Donald Glover, uh, Lakeith Stanfield, Brian Tyree Henry, who we might recognize from a bunch of stuff, including Eternals, Zazie Beetz, who played the girlfriend in Joker. And it's like an ensemble cast. Um, Brian Tyree Henry plays this rapper named Paperboy. And Donald Glover plays a guy named Earn. They, these guys all grew up together. He's his manager. And it's just like their mishaps going through the music industry. They start off poor in the beginning of the show, give like a little bit away. They're poor. They're trying to establish themselves. By the time we're in season three, he's like a really famous rapper and they all have money. And it's just this, I can't explain too much without giving key plot details away, but it's, it's really well done comedy. If you're looking for like a fun, smart comedy to watch, I, I put it on the level of like Barry or Veep or anything like up there. It's just a really good show. I would recommend it if you're looking for something. Episodes are like 25, 30 minutes, 10 episode seasons. So it's not a, not a huge time suck. So Atlanta, I recommend highly. It's on Hulu. And also just before we recorded, um, The Girl from Plainville, which is another docudrama that just premiered. This is with Elle Fanning. And this case was about a girl named Michelle Carter, who I don't know if either of you are familiar with this. She convinced her boyfriend to commit suicide. Oh, my God. I remember that case. Yeah. So this is this girl. Elle Fanning is playing the girl who sent the text messages. It was a three episode premiere. I only got to the first two. Um, I believe it's eight episodes I watched. And it's just it was a really shocking case just reading about it a couple of years ago. So seeing it transpire, I didn't know like the details of her family. She's Elle Fanning is so good and she's playing a really weird character. But yet you hate her, but you also feel sorry for her. That's what I got in the first two. And just, I'm interested to see how this transpires. Um, there's, you know, Anthony, you mentioned Winning Time earlier. There's just so many docudramas out right now. I've cited The Dropout previously. Um, we crashed with Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway. So if you're looking for like... Dope Sick. Yep, yep. Another one, Dope Sick. Dr. Death, that was last summer too. So there's mm. so many like limited series based on actual events that happened. And this was another one premiered last night. And I was just like, let me just catch this before we record. So I watched the the first two and that's that's really good. So that just add that to the list of docudramas that are out because there's like 10. I don't know how I'm keeping up with everything, but uh, maybe just I need to sleep at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so those are a couple of good rex good rex from both of you i i've never jackie i gotta confess i've never seen rumble in the bronx so i might need to rectify this at some point but i think it's worth a watch dave definitely anthony where someplace people can follow you uh you can follow me on instagram at twinkie 730 or as jackie mentioned earlier uh me and my friends do a little bit of a gaming competitions every once in a while we have some competitions and everything it's at arcade underscore wars on instagram uh they playing games, talk a little crap, and have a lot of fun. I, I was following your your competitions over the weekend. Looked like you guys were, were having a good time there. So it's it's good until, stuff, good content. Until I lost, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been better content if you won, but but yeah. nonetheless. Yeah. You got to keep us posted on the, on the belt. No, I'm we'll know. Bring, we'll bring the belt next going. time. Next <laughs> podcast, I'm bringing the belt. All right. All right. Uh, Jackie, where can we follow you? You can follow me on Instagram at Jackie Lynn 99.5, or you can find me on the Facebook group. Excellent. Um, you could find me at DDEM2000. That's my handle on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. 
We also have an Instagram for this show. It, even though this is Dollar Theater, we're hosting both podcasts on one Instagram now. It's at Was It That Bad Pod, all one word. Um, if you want to talk about this movie with myself, Anthony, Jackie, or any other movie show with a bunch of great people, join the Movie and Television Talk Facebook group. Type that into a group search. We are the red cover photo. Jackie, we got a fun couple weeks coming up. What's happening? Yes, we have a fun lineup for the next month. But for the next uh, two weeks, was it that bad? We're watching Snakes on a Plane. Yes. I think that's a good classic. Yeah. <laughs> was it that bad? <laughs> Showrunner here. Probably like the Quint when we decided to do this pod together. Probably like that was like one of the first movies that came to my mind. Yes. Like snakes, snakes on a Plane. Something we have to cover eventually. And Dollar Theater, we're watching Inglorious Bastards. Yes, excited for both of these. That's Anthony, one of my any... favorite movies ever. So I'm yeah, really, yeah, really pumped. I'm, I'm right there with you, Anthony. Any quick thoughts on either of those? Um, I, I can't play on uh, motherfucking things on the motherfucking plane. So <laughs> I will say, and this is going to get me in more trouble for some people. I still have not seen Inglorious Bastards. Oh man, good thing your boy didn't know that before he made that post. Yeah, I know that was that was my best friend there. He was really nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you got some homework to do, Anthony. I, I yeah, guess, you should have fixed that blind spot before Indiana Jones. I I, I got to agree with you now. The <laughs> Park, and I'm not. Well, I don't know if I'm going to get back in Indiana Jones, but Jurassic Park and Inglorious Bastards been on there. Just not a big war movie guy, but. It's Quentin Tarantino, so it should be amazing nonetheless. Yeah, we got that's two weeks away, so you got some time if you want to catch up before for that show. I got you. All right, cool. I'm not what? a big war movie person myself, Anthony. So, and this is definitely one of my favorite films. So. Yeah, uh, and then I then I'm sold. I think it's okay. my favorite Tarantino. I gotta like analyze that further, but it's it's up there. It's like if it's not if it's not one, it's two or three. It, it's it's high up mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. I'd have to agree, Dave. So, all right. Well, Anthony, thanks so much for joining us tonight and talking this movie. Was, Guys, thanks for having me. You got it. Anytime. Jackie, pleasure as always. Thanks, Dave. You got it. And everybody, thank you for listening. We will catch you all next week. Have a good night, everybody.